Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane, a place that Kyle Larson was this past weekend, and he has now punched his ticket to the championship for officially at Phoenix Raceway, thanks to his win at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Pretty, pretty compelling stuff when it came down to the end of it. We will chit-chat about that. Look ahead to the Forever 400 at Homestead Miami Speedway and chat with our guest this week, as you see from the episode title, Lauren Edwards of Ren Digital. She is not related to Carl. Do not get your uh, panties in a wad there. But she is making waves in the NASCAR industry and motorsports in general, and she may be able to and she may be starting and getting ready to make waves in the sports industry as a whole. She has a very interesting backstory. They, they got a lot of cool stuff going on at Ren. So I uh, was able to chit-chat with Lauren for a little bit and get her side of things. And I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say about that conversation. But before we do any of that and chat with Lauren, got to throw it over to Papa Siegel with this week's Wayback segment, episode 206. The discussion this week centers around a really good racing name, Speedy Thompson. Papa Siegel has more. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 206. This week, our Wayback Machine focuses its lens on what I think was a glaring omission from NASCAR's top 75 list. Alfred Bruce Thompson was known to his competitors as Speedy, and for good reason. He won 20 races in a 197-race career spanning 14 years, spread out from 1950 to 1971. Those wins included the Southern 500 in 1957 and the 1960 National 400 at Charlotte. That's 43rd on the all-time list, my friends. He finished third in the Cup Series points for four consecutive years, starting in 1956. So what, you ask? Consider that the champs during those years were Buck Baker and Lee Petty, twice each. That's legendary HOF competition. Not sure yet? How about this? Thompson is one of only three drivers with more than 20 cup wins who is not on the top 75 list. The others, Jim Paschal, to whom we've already devoted a prior segment, and Jack Smith, who you might be learning more about in an upcoming Wayback segment. Hint, hint. If all that wasn't enough, I'm a sucker for racers named Alfred. Bet you didn't know that Alfred was the first name of my favorite IndyCar driver, Al Unser, did you? If Speedy Thompson shares his first name with Big Al, that's good enough for me. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. You would bet correct. I had no idea that Al Unser's name was Alfred. I I just assumed it was Alan or Al. I would not have guessed it was Alfred by a long shot, so... You learn something new every day. That's why I love the Wayback segment. So, Papa Siegel, thank you very much for that. All right, let's start off this episode as we always do, and that is with a good old-fashioned... And throw it straight over to my chat with Lauren Edwards of Ren Digital and Consulting. She is a very interesting lady, and she has built a heck of an empire, I venture to say, in the NASCAR space and in the motorsports space in general. Started out on the social media side of things, wound up getting Jimmy Johnson's athlete brand social kind of off the ground, literally, and running. Wound up starting her own company after Jimmy called her on a gondola in Aspen. Yes, really. And uh, it has been 
all gravy from there on out. She dives into a lot of different things as it pertains to her as a CEO, business owner, entrepreneur extraordinaire. And I think it was very interesting to hear her perspective on a lot of things, especially as it pertains to social media and just how drivers and teams and brands are kind of showcased in that realm of things. So without further ado, I'll let you hear the chat. Here's Lauren Edwards of Ren Digital. Pleasure to welcome on to the show this week, Lauren Edwards. No relation to Carl, so everybody calm your horses. Uh, she is the CEO, owner, creator, extraordinaire of Ren Digital, not Ryan, Ren, right, Lauren? Correct. Um, okay. Yes, it is. It is a French word, um, which <laughs> in hindsight, maybe maybe naming a business, um, a, a word in another language um, makes it very tricky for people. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it is definitely Ren. Um, Ren is French for queen. Um, so Charlotte is the queen city. Um, I have a passion for all things French. And so Ren made a lot of sense when we were naming the company. Um, but uh, yes, it is. It is pronounced Ren. Um, and Hence uh, the queen uh, city of Charlotte. How often do people get it wrong? Oh, like 99% of the time. Um, <laughs> the most exciting thing that ever happened to me is we, um, when we signed a French client, Simon Pagano, uh -huh. and he was able to pronounce the company correctly, like day one. And I was like, Simon, it's meant to be. <laughs> That's why we hired you, Simon. Exactly. Like Simon, you were, you were always intended to be our client. You can pronounce right. the company name correctly. Right, right at the jump. Because I will admit, like, you know, seeing the growth of the company, which we'll get to, obviously, at the racetrack and whatnot, seeing people wearing branded polos and just talking to people. Oh, who do you work for? Oh, I'm with Ren, whatever. And then I see it written out and I'm like, oh, yeah, Ryan Digital. And then I'm like, nope, Ren, come on. So yeah. it's it's muscle memory, you know, it's the American in me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You know what? I've decided um, as much as as much as people get it wrong, it's always a great story to tell. Um, and it's always something that people then remember. Um, so it is it keeps us memorable once you learn and understand. So yeah, we get a lot of Ryan, we get a lot of rain, we get a lot of all rain. different things. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't doesn't bother me at all. People get so they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, Oh, I'm not offended at all. Yeah. Um, yes, it's definitely Definitely, Bren. Um, ironically, I was in Paris um, a few weeks ago and saw there was a building um, that that had Ren all over. I don't know what what business it was. Um, but New headquarters. Kind of, yeah, I was like, is this a sign? Are yeah. we opening internationally in Paris? <laughs> Let's make it happen. Uh, so, like you said, the the name comes French der derivation, right? And I think mm -hmm. also. You and your husband, John, you also have or had a house in Quebec City. So that's kind of where yes. the name and culture comes from as well. Yeah. Naming a business is really hard. Um, Apparently. And, <laughs> yeah. And so when I was doing it, um, I wanted something that felt authentic to me, um, but didn't feel like an adjective, um, like, you know, kind of describing what we did. I just wanted a word. Um, and so that's where, you know, yes, the place in Quebec City um, we've had for several years and really love it. It's French speaking. Um, it's very charming. It's a very French city. And I'm very drawn to Quebec City, um, obviously, with owning a place there and then living in the Queen City of Charlotte. It just really kind of made sense. So I know this is a very big picture question and we'll, we'll kind of dive down into the nitty gritty eventually here, but you guys do it all from social media to brand building. You've kind of added marketing and communications, PR, the whole nine. And you guys kind of run the gamut with all your clients. How and why did this all start for you? And I know that Jimmy Johnson has a big part to play in it, but like I said, it's a, it's yes. a big picture question. So I'll let you take it any direction you'd like. Yeah, um, it it really uh, Jimmy played a huge part, um, and and I have a lot of respect for Jimmy for being a real advocate, um, an ally for women. Um, he always has been. I know he's that's something that he he's very passionate about, especially with having two daughters. Um, but you know, I think people can say that a lot and be like, yeah, yeah, no, I support women. I definitely do, and then not really walk the walk. Um, yeah. and I have a lot of respect for him actually walking the walk, um, and putting women in places that they might not be in before. And so basically for me, um, I had worked for Jimmy for, uh, about five years. Um, I worked for him from 2012 to 2017. And, um, during that time he, he, in 2012, he was one of one of the first athletes really to bring, um, a full-time social media manager 
in-house um, and really manage him. Definitely the first NASCAR driver um, and really one of the first athletes overall. Um, it was a very unique position when I took it uh, in 2012. I didn't have a lot, even as I was, you know, I, I had a lot of relationships with folks at Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And I was kind of talking to them and they were like, wait, you work, you work for the athlete? Like, this is mind blowing um, because it just wasn't a thing that a lot of athletes were doing 11 years ago. Um, and, and so kudos to him and, and really his business manager, John Lewinston, um, for having the foresight to be able to say, Hey, this, this thing, this social media thing is going to be really big. Um, and so I came on and I, I remember, um, the, the, the first day, the first day that I started, John Lewinston kind of said to me, he was like, yeah, I don't really know what your job is supposed to be or what you're supposed to do, but you're either going to sink or swim. So I, good luck. Like if I can support you, let me know. Like John is the most incredible person, but literally I think he and Jimmy were just like, we know this is important, but we don't know what, what to do with it. So in the five years that I worked with him, I just, I did a lot. Um, we accomplished so many things. We really, I feel like kind of set the, the, we trailblazed what it looks like for an athlete to be successful on social media and not just have a lot of followers. Um, that's important, but also how do you leverage those followers to bring real monetary value to an athlete through sponsorship and things like that? which, you know, other folks were posting fun videos, but what did they do for the athlete besides, oh, that was a cool video, you know, and, and we really kind of set the tone for what that looked like. And really, um, it was incredible. And so in 2017, um, I, or the end of 2016, really, I, I wanted, um, I just felt like I could do so much more. Uh, and, and I was like, you know, I, I was very happy with Jimmy. I loved working with him and John, um, but I felt like I could do more. And I got a job offer um, to go build a a social media kind of arm of, of an existing agency. And in talking to Jimmy, Jimmy just, like I said, was a massive ally and said, hey, I believe in you. I think you can absolutely do that. I think that you can build an incredible social media in an entire agency, but then go build it for yourself. Like if you, if you believe it and I believe it and John believes it, why wouldn't you go do it for yourself? And so, um, so I started the company a few weeks later, Jimmy called me literally new year's Eve from a gondola in Aspen. He was yep. skiing and he was like, Hey, here's the deal. I got two minutes. You're going to start your own agency. You're going to tell me what I need to like, what do I need to, I'll be your first client. I'll make sure you feel comfortable starting. My legal team will get you all set up. I've already talked to them. They're going to file all your paperwork. They're going to get you all set up and you're going to go do this on your own. And at the time I had zero desire to do that. Zero. Like that wasn't, people had told me before, oh, you should start your own company. And I was like, no, don't want to do it. I'm good. Um, but with an athlete of Jimmy's caliber saying that to me, thankfully, 29-year-old me was smart enough to go, oh, I don't think people get offers like that all the time. I should really do this. Yeah. And so I did. Um, and I took the leap two weeks later. So that was New Year's Eve that Jimmy said that. January 17th, the company, I no longer worked for Jimmy Johnson. I worked for Ren. The company was incorporated. I mean, the whole deal started. And I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> but I had been in that position before because when I went to work for Jimmy, right. it was like this, okay, you got this great job, but we don't, no one knows what you're supposed to do. You have to figure it out. Learn so on was, the fly. Exactly. So I was like, okay, well, I've been in this position before. I guess I'm going to figure out now how to run a business. <laughs> do you think that in that moment for those two minutes on that gondola ride, which is hilarious, by the way, every time I, I was like prepping for this interview and that story kept coming up. So I'm glad Classic you told Jimmy. that. Yeah. Um, do you think that he knew something about you or he saw something in you that you didn't really know about yourself or seeing yourself in that moment or that time period to give you that push to go do this? Probably. Um, I, you know, I think, I think I had, you know, I, at that time I had a lot of great ideas. I can't say I had the confidence to say like, Oh no, I'm really good at this or I'm the best. I'm like, okay, just keep working harder. Just keep, you know, what's the next big thing? How are we going to improve? How are we going to, that was just the way my brain worked. Um, but Jimmy's really smart. He's really smart. Um, he's, he's one of the smartest, 
individuals I've ever worked with just from a people sense. Um, and so I think, you know, he probably saw that I had the capability to do this if I pushed myself. Um, and I think he saw I probably needed that little push. Um, and I actually I have a funny story. The first weekend that I worked, that I went to track with Jimmy um, was the Brickyard, um, Indianapolis of 2012, the summer of 2012. And I, I know that I was walking around terrified because Jimmy did an interview with Sage Steele. He did a talk back on ESPN with Sage and Marty was there hanging with the ESPN people at track, um, Marty Smith. And Marty came up to me and I had known him a little bit, you know, obviously being in the industry, but not super well. He's very good friends with Jimmy. And he came up to me and he was like, you look terrified. And I was like, Marty, I am, I am terrified. I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and Marty just looked at me and he said, well, I've known Johnson for a, a lot of years. And he doesn't make mistakes. So if he hired you, there's a reason. You'll figure it out. And I was like, oh, okay. And like, you know, a lot of respect, one, a lot of respect for Marty for saying that to a terrified 29 year old girl who was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Or I guess at the time I was probably 25, you know, like I was probably like, yeah, this terrified 25 year old girl. So a lot of respect for Marty there, but he's right. Jimmy's really smart and really people smart and really calculated. And I think, you know, that's where I think some of when I talk about being an ally and an advocate, I think seeing that I had it in me to do it and then saying, okay, then go, like, I'm going to push you out of the nest. I'm going to force you to do something that might feel uncomfortable at first, right. but really, I think you could be successful at, um, you know, I, I just, again, all the respect in the world and truly John Lewinston played a massive part in that. Um, yes, of course, Jimmy was the one that ultimately made the decision, but John really, really spent a lot of time talking to Jimmy and I think John saw it as well. Um, so yeah. You've mentioned, you know, being an ally for women, you're a woman owned business, Female empowerment's a big thing, not just in society, but I, I'm glad that it's kind of working its way into the motorsports world and NASCAR specifically. I think now you do not have all women on your staff. I think you have one or two men. Is that right? Yeah, we have two men on staff. Um, Donald, who leads kind of our sponsorship activation and hospitality right. division. And then um, Will, who just came over from the PGA, actually, um, and is on our content team um, and does a great job. He does video, photo, graphic design, all of that. But it wasn't necessarily by design that for however many years you just happen to have an all all female staff. That just kind of happenstance. Yeah, um, I one of the things that I think I'm I'm really strong at and has really helped us in the business is putting the right people in the right seat at the right time. Um, so really being able to hire well and hire. I held myself to a standard that. I would wait to hire any position. I would do multiple jobs in the beginning. I would be like, okay, we got this work. Well, I now have to do two jobs until I can find the right person to do this job. And there are times we, there are times we've, we've had to wait five or six months to hire someone because we just didn't find the right fit. Um, and we, I'm so passionate about about the right person doing the right job. Um, and I think it is what has made us so successful because every person that we have really deeply cares about the clients and the work that they're working on, but they also have unique talents and skills for each client that we put them on and each team and vertical that they work on within our company that it has it's kind of like a little magic in a bottle when you put the right, all the right people in the right places. Um, and so for me, as I was hiring in the beginning, it was a lot of women and that was not intentional at all. I interviewed plenty of men. They weren't the right fit. There were plenty of women that weren't the right fit either, but sure. yeah, for quite a while, it was a lot of women. And, you know, for me, I'm almost more proud of that. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm only going to hire females. Okay, well, then you just cut out 50% of the pop. Like, okay, right. you just make that distinction. To say, I'm only going to hire the best of the best and the right person for each job, and to have that be a female for so many positions, I think speaks to the talent of what is out there in the marketplace that people maybe overlook sometimes uh, because they're trying to hit certain quotas or they're trying to say, oh, you know, oh, I, I connected with this guy in an interview. Right. Yeah, great. But is he the right person for that job? You know, and and so I think I always look at it as I can teach someone, I can teach someone almost anything. We've hired many, many people that don't, that have never worked in sports before. I'm like, I can teach you sports. I didn't know anything about NASCAR when I got into it, but I can't teach you how to be the right person and the right fit and, and the passion for your client. 
Speaking of NASCAR, you mentioned it there. You didn't really know a whole lot about it. You didn't grow up in the sport. You didn't grow up around it, going to races, stuff like that. But I know that you did have an internship with Pocono and the Eagles, uh, being from that area. And do I have it right that you kind of knew through a friend of a friend or family friends, the Mattiolis, and that was kind of a jumping off point to get an internship at Pocono when you were in school? Yeah, absolutely. So we've, um, we've been family friends with the Mattioli family for years. Um, so Doc Mattioli's daughter, Louie has just, um, she lived in Philly during the time we were there. My parents became friends with her and we just became family friends. Um, and so it was something I, I had been up to the track throughout middle school, high school during race weekends, we would help out, but it was never something that really, I I thought was going to be a career or really something I was deeply passionate about then. Um, I actually went to college for international economic development. Um, so I, a little different. Yeah. A little bit different. Um, (laughs) I went to William and Mary, um, in Williamsburg, Virginia and studied economics and international relations. Um, I was working towards, you know, the, the state department was my dream job. Um, I wanted to work for the state department and, um, after my freshman year, um, I, I looked for internships, um, because I was like, you know, I could go home and be a lifeguard or waitress or, you know, whatever, get a summer job from college. But I was like, I think an internship is going to be more valuable. Um, and in talking to Louie, um, she, she offered me a marketing internship up at Pocono. And I was like, you know what? It's not, it's not international relations and it's not economics, but there really aren't a ton of those internships for freshmen. So let me go ahead and do a marketing internship. At least it's a business internship. That's a, you know, that's good. And I loved it. And I was so good at it. But even then I was like, okay, that was fun. Great. Sophomore year, I went back and I was like, nope, back into my international relations and economics. And then I applied for an internship in between my sophomore and junior year um, with the state department actually, and didn't get it. And I was crushed. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And I ended up going back to Pocono again, or yes, I went back to Pocono again. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I felt like a failure. And during that summer, I, I just, it all kind of clicked. And I was like, you know what? I'm really good at the sports marketing side of things. And I love it. And I think I want to do this. So I came back my junior year of college and I added a marketing degree. The business school was like, I was like in all the like entry level business school classes with all the freshmen. And I was like, Hey, nope, I'm a junior. What's up? (laughs) Um, and so added that on and they were like, I, we don't know if you can get it done in two years. And I was like, oh, well, I, you know, I've already finished this one degree. So let's just, just pack it on, you know, paying you guys, let's just, you know, add another. And so, um, so added the marketing and then I did an internship with the Eagles because I thought I wanted to work. Um, I thought I wanted to work for, for the Eagles. Like I was like, this is it. This is the dream job. Um, you know, I'm a massive Eagles fan, grew up going to games, living in Philly. Um, and so I was like, this is it. And I got into the internship and I was like, Oh my God, I hate this. Like not the Eagles organization is fantastic. I just wanted to be a fan. I just wanted to enjoy my team. And I think that was a big wake up call for me of like, you know what? I don't want to work in a sport that I'm a fan of. I, I, and that's where NASCAR really became a thing. I was like, I'm good at it. I, I can get by. I understand it. I've been at Pocono for a while, but it's not something that I like feel like I'm missing out if I have to work during a race. Sure. That makes sense. So when you kind of have that internship at Pocono, you go to the Eagles and then you kind of figure out, all right, I thought I wanted to do this. I'm really good at this and I enjoy that. So let's explore that a little bit further. And before you kind of got entrenched into the sport, I know that you worked on the sprint program for a while and we'll get to that. But before that, I believe you were at Hall of Fame racing on the 96 team with DLP. (laughs) Yes. So that was actually with Octagon. So okay. we, so DLP used Octagon as their agency. Um, so the very first client I ever worked on was, was the DLP account, obviously wow. with Hall of Fame racing, what a throwback. Um, which I, right. Um, <laughs> Troy Aikman and Roger Staubach. I was like, what? Like, yep, yep. So I'm not getting away from football entirely. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was, an incredible opportunity. And I learned so much on that account. I actually was doing hospitality. Um, I was managing all the hospitality for DLP and uh, not managing. I was entry level, but I was working on the hospitality program. Um, And I, I, yeah, I really, I just learned so much and I just 
completely dove in deep and I was like, okay, what, what do I need to know? What do I not know? Um, and thankfully the team that I worked with was very understanding of the fact that I didn't know a lot about NASCAR. And so they really, they taught me a lot about the sport itself, um, which was super helpful. And yeah, it was, it was great. But then obviously, so I, I did that account. Um, I started that the summer of 2008 and it, that team went away yep. at the end of 2008. So at that point I was like, what do I do now? Um, and there was a position open on the sprint account, um, at Octagon. And so I applied for it and ended up moving over to the sprint account, um, in, in 2009. And I think that you were specifically kind of entrenched in working with the Miss Sprint Cup program, which to your point with Jimmy, right? This is obviously before Jimmy, but with Jimmy, you were kind of learning social media on the fly as it pertains to a singular athlete or an athlete's brand with the sprint cup and the sprint program. That was kind of at the early onset of social media in general, as a whole, like new platforms popping up, learning how different things work and engagement. And I read a story when I think you guys tagged Juan Pablo Montoya and you used the at symbol yeah. And that was like a revolutionary thing, which is oh, our hilarious. To and talk he was about. like, what is this? Why are yeah. we doing this? And I was like, because it's tagging. We we should be doing it. And he's like, like I what's don't even tagging? I need a deck. I need yeah. a deck. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, like there was so many things that are commonplace now that back then had never been done before. So what was yeah. it like to not just work on a big account and brand like Sprint, who was the entitlement sponsor of the Cup Series, but learn on the fly how to represent them in an evergreen and growing space like social? Uh, it is... When I think back to some of the things that I did when I was 23, 24 years old, I am blown away. Me too. Um, <laughs> but like it, it's mind boggling. It would never happen in today's time. Um, it, it just wouldn't. Uh, there, there would be a 45 year old director that would be making the decisions I was making. Um, but no one knew anything. So I started on the Sprint account really working on national programs, um, like, you know, national sales programs, national consumer retention programs, things like that. And being on that team and on that program, um, one of the things that popped up, Sprint said, we think Facebook, just Facebook, There, that was it. That At the time in 2008, the, or two, yeah, 2008, 2009, they were like, we just think we should have a Facebook page for Miss Sprint Cup. Facebook is now public. You know, any, What a concept. What a concept. <laughs> And Octagon, you know, one of the vice presidents at Octagon sent like a company-wide email and he was like, does anyone know anything about this Facebook deal? Because Sprint wants to get on it and we need help. And I was like, sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been stalking people for four years in college. I know everything about Facebook. Felt like <laughs> and, a job and now you'll get paid to stalk people. Exactly. I'm like, man, my college <laughs> professors really talked to me uh -huh. about Facebook. Little do they know. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I just kind of dived in. Um, and thankfully, I really think my economics background helped a ton um, because I am so numbers driven. And at the time, social wasn't a numbers thing. Like that I built, I built a a we used to manually track every piece of data on the sprint account because I was like, how do we prove to sprint that this is successful? Um, and that was the way my brain thought as a 22 year old, which is insane. Um, but I was, we built an entire tracking system that I had a team of, of people underneath me that would literally go in and manually record every single post. So every, all the engagement, all of the impressions, and we were manually recording that because there was no tracking software. You didn't have a zoom or a sprout or a, you know, meltwater, like there was no tracking. We built this document. And then it evolved into like a 20 tab Excel grid with pivot tables and the amount of data that we could glean. Like I could tell you that a post at 8.15 on a Tuesday night that referenced a driver performed better than a post on a Wednesday night at 7.30 that referenced a sprint product or, you know, whatever it was like you could, we could manipulate crazy amounts of data. Um, and I think that was something that that really helped that program ultimately succeed because we were delivering incredible amounts of valuable data to Sprint, especially as it relates to consumer sentiment and things like that. Like they're a cell phone company. People aren't necessarily getting on social media to be like, I love my cell phone so yeah. much. Like the only feedback you're getting is negative. Miss Sprint Cup became this positive force for Sprint 
that I don't even think they realized that that she was capable of, you know, and and we really changed that program from being just, you know, a, a face in Victory Lane, a billboard in Victory Lane to being truly an industry, an industry ambassador for Sprint that kind of changed the tone of how people felt about Sprint because everyone liked Miss Sprint Cup. She was awesome. She was the fan's friend on the inside. You know, she she was one of you, but she was in the garage giving you what you wanted to see. And, you know, for for us, like the fact that I got to develop that and and come up with that fan's friend on the inside and and really build the strategy. Like I said, in today's time, that would be a six-month process with director-level people that are sitting around talking strategy, but they no one knew anything. So they were like, oh, this 23-year-old, yeah, she did. She knows Facebook. Just tell us what to do. Just let her tell go, us, yeah. Let her go. And they did. And I got to hire people, and I hired people who were smarter than me. That is my role always. If I'm hiring you, there should be at least one thing that you know that I don't know. <laughs> Because we're not ever going to get better if I'm just hiring, like if I still know more. And so I just hired people that knew more and could do better. And and that program really evolved. And I am so proud of what that program was um, and, and how it impacted the Sprint sponsorship overall. Um, and truly, you know, truly look back and say, like, how did they let a 23-year-old <laughs> do that? But no one knew any better at the time. It was 2009. Yeah. And like you said, learning on the fly. I mean, I had Monica Palumbo on the show a little bit ago, and I'm fortunate to call her a friend just the stories that she would tell about that time and just like learning on the fly not really knowing what you don't know but it obviously wound up successful so it's cool to see the perspective that you had on all that stuff as well I'm curious you know you have had a ton of different projects or I guess you could say like what's the word I'm looking for you've done a lot of different things as it pertains to drivers and marketing and programs I guess right so I mean, a couple that come to mind for me, right, that are funny, that are kind of memorable. Uh, Tim Richmond and Alex Bowman doing that photo shoot and those different things. That was really that was cool. Uh, Jimmy Johnson with the hangover photos. That was really cool. And on the other side, on the serious side of things, I think you were also one of the people that was instrumental in helping orchestrate the video that kind of came out in 2020 at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement with Jimmy Johnson spearheading it and all the cup drivers putting that on TV when everybody yeah. was just at home during the lockdown. Uh, is there any one specific project or anything that you did as a group that you're particularly proud of that's really memorable, either for good reasons, bad reasons, impactful reasons, anything like that? You bring up the the 2020 um, Black Lives Matter video, and I think that for me was one that, that really was impactful for me. Um, you know, in social media, we do a lot of fun things. Um, yes, the hangover. We did the car swap with Fernando Alonso and right. the teasing of that and the back and forth people being like, what? Are they signing a joint partner? Like, <laughs> you know, um, we, the, the, you know, uh, we've done so many fun things. I think about, you know, in 2020, the Brad Kozlowski, the, the family, the, the big head family that he, you know, staged all the photos because the girls couldn't be at track with him. And, you know, there's been some really funny things. And I love that. I love that fans get to see some of these guys' personality and, and engage with them. But when you think about what we've built with our athlete platforms and the power that they hold, I think to be able to have an impact like that video was, it was so much bigger than me. Um, it was so much bigger than just Jimmy. Um, it, it really was incredible. And I am, again, Jimmy, um, it's something I'm very passionate about. Um, inclusion is something that I feel very strong. It's one of our core values at Ren. Everyone has a seat at the table. Everyone deserves to have a seat at the table, um, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of religion, regardless of anything. You know, if you if you're the right person, then you're the right person. Again, how I hire um, it, the right person in the right seat at the right time. And you know, for me, um, that was a really hard time for our nation, really hard. And Jimmy entrusted me to to write that script, which is incredible. Um, he connected me with several leaders um, in, in the space that he knew. Um, you know, I, I he and I had a very open conversation and I was like, yeah, we want to do this and we want to, this matters and we can do this together. But Jimmy, you're a white man and I'm a white woman. Like, 
we're, yes, I am, a, I, I can write and I am a very good writer and I can write, you know, really good VOs and things like that. But I'm still like, you know, like, and he was like, you're right. And he said the same thing. He was like, we aren't equipped to do this on our own. And I was like, no. And so I took a stab, you know, we, he and I kind of worked on it together. We workshopped it, um, wrote a lot of it. And then he connected me with several people. Um, I spent a lot of time actually talking with Justin Sylvester who works for E, um, and does some stuff on, he now does some stuff on good morning America and things like that. Um, and spent a lot of time talking to Justin and, and, you know, he's a, he's a big advocate and supporter for the black lives matter movement. And, and one of the things that he said that I wouldn't have even thought of, and I was so grateful and thankful for him sharing his experience as a black man going through this time. Um, and he said that, um, saying the names of the victims was incredibly impactful to the black community. And so we had Jimmy and Dale and Bubba deliver those names because I was like, then that needs to be people with massive impact. That needs to be Dale Jr. That needs to be Jimmy. That needs to be Bubba. Like, and so just little things like that, that I think took that video from being okay to being really impactful. And I think that's part of what everyone needed to learn during that time is listen, listen, ask questions and listen, learn. And, and I think, you know, so for me, that was something that was really impactful. And I appreciate every driver. I mean, Jimmy basically put me on a group text with every driver and said, hey, Lauren wrote the script. You guys film it, send it to her. We're going to edit it up. I mean, the amount of trust that that takes for those drivers to trust Jimmy enough to record and film and send this to me, like that is that shows the level of respect that he has in that garage because People didn't question it. What? Not one single driver was like, "I don't know." Send it to me. Let me send it to my legal team and review. They were all, all like, right. "Okay, Jimmy said it. Lauren, here's my video." And we put it all together. And NASCAR helped. And you know, obviously, we looped NASCAR in. We were like, "This, this is bigger than just Jimmy." Heads up. Um, and so I think for me, like the way that it came together felt really impactful. It wasn't just something that we were like, "Oh, Jimmy." film a quick video on your iPhone and toss it up. Um, and, and, you know, we really it were intentional about making sure that it felt right to Baba felt right to the, to, you know, many people in the black community. And then like the way that we rolled it out was really strategic and smart. And we worked with the broadcast and it just, that one for me felt like it had such a bigger impact. Yeah. The hangover was so fun in Vegas. The hangover was awesome. And it was so fun. <laughs> But everyone laughed and had a good time and we referenced it occasionally and we moved on. Yeah. I hope that that video impacted someone somewhere that needed it at that moment and that it was bigger than just sports. Well said. And I think that's a, a good perspective to have, too, of, you know, social media should be and can be really fun and engaging and it should make you laugh. But life is life and you got to be serious at some points. And I think that video was very very, um, very apropos at that time. And I think you guys did a great job with that. A couple quick hitters and I'll let you run up. You've been so generous with your time. Um, the reason I wanted to talk to you is I saw Adam Stern and sports business journal. They did a, a story on you and it kind of piqued my interest because I knew about you. I knew about Ren, but wanted to learn a little bit more. And in that story, Adam basically said that you guys have done over a million dollars in revenue annually. And I'm curious, you know, it might not sound like a lot to some people that are running a company, but to Lauren, who was 22 years old, scared, and Marty Smith noticed, what would that girl say to you now? I, that was, that for me, when we hit the million dollar mark, which we are well over now, and I am blown away Hell and yeah. so proud of. Um, but for me, I remember when I started the business, within probably two months of starting it, I saw a Forbes article that talked about how, like, less than 5% of female owned businesses ever, ever in the existence of these companies made over a million dollars in revenue. And I was horrified. Like we are talking, I, I, truly a million dollars in revenue as a business, is, it is an incredible number, but it's not that much. Right, I know what you mean. <laughs> and the fact that 5% of businesses that were, that were owned and run by a female were, were, weren't even hitting that low threshold. I was horrified. And I was like, I, I'm going to hit that. That is unbelievable. I'm going to be in the 5%. So for me, like hitting that benchmark really was incredible. 
for me, it's really, it's never been about the money. Um, certainly it's a business. We need to make money. For me, it's been about creating opportunities for people to do jobs that they love and be passionate about, you know, our core values at Ren, you know, of course, yes, we need to make money. We're a business. That's, that's the nature of, I need to pay my employees, but I really wanted to build something different. I wanted to build something where people were excited to go to work every day. Um, you know, I am passionate. I think jobs are some, are a source of fulfillment for people. They should be a source of pride and fulfillment. You should be, you should get a sense of pride from your job that you can't get anywhere else in life. And so, Preach you know, it. Yeah. Like I really, I really believe that, um, you know, you need friends, you need family, kids, spouses, you need all these things in your life, but you also need a job. It's not just a means to an end. It's not just a way to get a paycheck. It's also something that should bring you pride. And I think so many times people are just like, I hate my job. I hate the, the Sunday scaries, the, you know, all of that. There are moments that I do work that I don't enjoy. Yeah. I'm Absolutely. still the business owner and there's stuff I have to do that I'm like, not my favorite. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I love my job. I am so passionate about it. And I think if you asked any of my employees, they would say the exact same thing. And that means more to me than anything else. So yeah, the revenue goal at the time that I was starting the business felt so important because I was 30 and I didn't know better. And I was like, yes, we, I want to be successful. I want to make, now sure. I've realized success to me looks like an office of people who are doing their absolute best work and have so much pride and are really happy. And what that has resulted in is doing exceptional work for our clients that our clients are like, how do you even function? Well, when everyone's their best self and, and have, takes pride in it, that's what you get. You're making me want to run through a brick wall right now, Lauren. My God, jeez, I can see why people like going to work for you. Oh, my God. All right, last thing. Um, what's next? When you look five, ten years down the road for rent, or even maybe just next week or in the off season, whatever it may be. Yeah. What's next? So, um, so we just hired a president, Liz Porter. Um, Liz has an incredible background in overall sports. So Liz worked, I actually met Liz working on the Sprint account at Octagon. She was there for 12 or 13 years doing a lot of the sponsorship activation side of things. Um, she then went to work for the Hornets um, as director of partnerships. And most recently was at Rogers and Cowan um, managing kind of the Truist account and a lot of their assets in MLB, NFL, things like that. Um, we brought Liz on. Liz is one of, she's a visionary. She's one of the smartest individuals I've ever met. Um, and she has an incredible network and background in overall sports. So for me, I felt really passionately about knowing that we could do it right, knowing that we could be successful. And we have seen so much success in NASCAR. And so one of the reasons that we brought Liz on, I was like, okay, this model we've created, our processes, our systems, our people, how we think is so unique and, and, and incredible and delivers wild results in the NASCAR space. Let's move to the NFL. Let's move to the NBA. Let's move to the NHL. Let's move, you know, where, how do we expand? How do we take this? We can be in any sport. We actually just, um, one of our clients this year um, had a PSA with Greg Olson and we did an entire shoot with him and we planned the whole thing top to bottom, did the entire production day. Our production team is a team of women. Yes. Um, and we, um, Greg left that day, both Greg and his agent said, this is the best, best partner shoot we've ever been on. It was well organized. That. It was efficient. It was, the content was hilarious and funny. It was, they were like, this was just top to bottom, incredible. And I'm like, okay, if Greg Olson is saying, this is one of the best shoots he's ever done in his career. And we right. know many things he's done. We can run circles around anyone in any sport. So let's go. So let's go. I'm telling you, you're like a motivational speaker and a business boss, CEO, all in one. I love it. Um, Lauren, it's been great getting to know you a little bit better, getting to know Ran and the story and everything. And I appreciate your time. I know we went a little bit long, but I think the people will really enjoy hearing this side of things and they can now understand kind of the secret sauce behind some of the drivers and brands and personalities that they see in the garage. So congrats on all the success, continued success and I look forward to seeing what you guys can do, not just in NASCAR moving forward, but also in the world of sports. It's been great getting to chat. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was wonderful. I really, really appreciate the time. And we are back. Whew, thank you to Lauren for all the time there. I really appreciate it. She is a very, very busy woman, so I'm very appreciative of 
anytime she's able to block off. And thank you to Eileen as well from Ren Digital for helping coordinate that conversation. Again, really cool stuff going on over on those side of the walls at Ren Digital. I know we usually kind of stay focused on competition or analytical media side of things with, you know, crew chiefs and drivers and team owners and this and that. We don't really get into this side of things too much, but I think this is kind of exactly what the podcast is there for. It's there for stories, and Lauren has a heck of a one to tell, and I'm appreciative that she did so here with us this week. Time to chit-chat briefly about Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and it's Larson who gets her done out in Sin City. Won stage one, won stage two, won the race, but it was not that easy because Christopher Bell was breathing down his neck coming to the checkered flag. I'll be honest, I didn't think that the 20 was going to get there, but he sure proved me wrong, and Cliff Daniels, and uh, probably a lot of other people. And he also could have probably been a little bit more aggressive, whether or not that's moving Kyle for the win, wrecking Kyle for the win, trying to make another move to get by Kyle for the win. He could have probably done any of those things, but he chose not to, which I personally commend. But Christopher was kind of kicking himself after the race, not just for not doing one of those things, but just flat out not getting the job done, said that he thought that moment and that move right there was his chance to make the championship four, and he just didn't capitalize on it. Now, not to say he could go in Homestead this weekend. He could go in Martinsville like he did last year, oh, by the way, to get into the championship four, because he certainly is more than capable, and I think that he can do that. But kind of like Bubba Wallace in the round of 12 at Texas, right? You have that late race restart. You're restarting up front, and you just don't execute. You don't get the job done. And I'm sure Bubba and Booty, and they were kind of kicking themselves for not getting the job done on that specific restart at Texas. And they can probably point to that race as to why they did not advance. Christopher Bell, Adam Stevens, and the 20 team, if they are not fortunate enough to advance to their second straight championship four, I think they'll be able to point to that ending right there at Vegas as to why. But nonetheless, Kyle Larson, he is locked in, winning the first race of this round. It is a big, big deal. Obviously, the last couple years, the champion has won the first race in the round of eight. Larson did it two years ago at Texas, and Joey Logano did it last year right here at Las Vegas Motor Speedway as well. Difference is this year compared to last year, Joey and Paul Wolf, they were basically saying, we are all focused on Phoenix. We don't care, really care about Homestead. We don't really care about Martinsville. We are just all eyes, all focused on Phoenix. Kyle and Cliff have kind of said the opposite. You know, They're like, don't get us wrong. We're, we're glad to be locked in. We're, we're looking ahead to Phoenix. But we want to go out and kick everybody's ass at Homestead. And we want to do it again at Martinsville. Because whether or not you think it's a real tangible thing, they are strong believers in momentum. And I think Homestead is probably one of, if not the best place for Kyle to go to potentially whoop him, wax him, do it again, and get that momentum. So Kyle Larson, I think he probably is the betting favorite right now in Vegas, no pun intended, after winning Las Vegas, and I can totally see why. And up next is a trip to one of the best tracks on the circuit, one of everybody's favorite racetracks, Homestead Miami Speedway. Not the season finale anymore, unfortunately. But the third to last race of the year, the middle race for the round of 12. And this time, it is Kevin Harvick's last time in South Beach for a as a NASCAR Cup Series driver. The race, sponsored by Mobile One, is going to be called the Forever 400. And Kevin and Stuart Haas Racing, they're going to be sporting a really, really cool throwback car. If you guys haven't seen it by now, just go on X or Instagram or any social platform. You'll be able to see it there. But you guys remember that Budweiser red and white paint scheme that Kevin had in his first year with Stuart Haas in 2014 when they won the championship? Well, they are throwing back to that specific car. It looks basically like a carbon copy, just the next-gen number has the door slid a little bit forward. And uh, I got to say, since those were kind of back in my Harvick fanboy days, no shame, I'll fully admit it, uh, watching that seven-or-so-minute tribute video with all the engineers and the interior guys and the crew chiefs and you know everybody that was involved in Kevin's career at that point, on Kevin's team at that point, it got me a little misty-eyed. Not going to lie to you. I was cutting onions that day for dinner, uh, which was good, by the way. Smash burgers. Turned out well. Uh, but I was I was a baby. I, I was not bawling my eyes out, but I was for sure crying a little bit, tearing up. 
I'm sure I'm going to feel the same way when I see that car hit the track this weekend. Rodney Childers, who is also in that video, he's going to give the command to fire engines with his wife Katrina and his kids by his side. That's going to be a really cool moment. And just seeing that four car in that paint scheme and that livery go on the high banks of Homestead again for the last time, that's going to be a pretty cool sight to see. Uh, and I'm sure that I'm going to be a basket case when it comes to Phoenix. So if you see me out there, please just uh, know my emotions will be very high, uh, as they will be this weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway. And even though Harvick's not in the playoffs, we still got seven guys that are looking to kind of punch their ticket and make their way, lock their way in, I should say, into the championship four. One of them being Ryan Blaney, who uh, <laughs> had a heck of a week, to say the least. Finishes sixth at Las Vegas. After the race, gets DQ'd for a shock issue. 22 hours later, NASCAR rescinds the DQ, reinstates his stage points, reinstates his sixth-place finish, and he goes from 50-plus points below to, I believe, 17 points below. So before he was in a virtual must-win scenario, now he's kind of back on solid footing. Still going to be a tall task, in my opinion, to get his way into the championship four, but he is in a obviously much, much, much better spot. So that was a heck of a 24 hours for Ryan Blaney. Chris Buescher, his Ford teammate, he also had just an okay day at Vegas. Finish 11th, but still sits not too pretty in the point standings. But you have William Byron, Martin Truex Jr., and Denny Hamlin. They are all above the cut line, but not by much. By nine and by two points right now. Truex obviously had a bad call by his crew chief, James Small. He even admitted it. James Small did of leaving him out there to start stage two on old tires. That kind of messed with the rest of their day as it pertained to track position. But going to a track that Truex has won at, Denny has won at, Larson has won at, Reddick has won at twice in the Xfinity Series, but has yet to do that in the Cup Series. Byron has won at, did that two years ago with his crew chief, Rudy Fugel, for their first ever win together at the Cup Series level. Busher has won a stage at. Blaney, he won a mile and a half track earlier this year. I mean, you could legitimately, I think I just did, make a case for all eight drivers that are left in the playoffs to win this race, and that is why I think it's going to be one of the best races we've seen all year long. Forever 400 on NBC and Sirius XM NASCAR Radio, as well as the Motor Racing Network, this Sunday, 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC. And that'll wrap things up for episode 206 of Victory Lane 2.0 Party People. Appreciate you tuning in this week and every week. And really appreciative of Lauren Edwards and, again, Eileen for helping coordinate that conversation. Thank you, gals, very, very much. And continued success over at Ren Digital. If you guys like what you heard here today, please do me a favor. You can leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on Apple, the green app, Google, SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasts. We should be available there for your consumption. If we're not, drop me a line, and I will try to rectify that issue for you we'll be back next week to recap homestead miami preview martinsville the penultimate race of the season and chat with another guest from the world of nascar talk to you then everybody